A second interview conducted with John Morton at Paraparamu on 9 December 2013. Okay, John. Um, there's some questions being posed uh, on your experiences with these various uh, helicopters, and I think it would be good in this session just to work our way through some of those in general terms mm -hmm. um, and um, see if we can't answer some of those particular sort of um, areas that, that they're interested in. And starting off with the ultralight helicopter, which uh, you, you, we, we talked about in the last session. Yep. Um, and you said it was it was really was a, a, an experimental aeroplane more than anything. Yes, it was. It was built to an army specification, but um, I think they weren't terribly serious about it when they realised what they'd let themselves in for. Um, a small aircraft operating forward on the battlefield is, uh, is something that they had no experience of before, and uh, it was a luxury which I don't think they could afford. So we started off really pushing it uphill. Uh, the specification was there, but the um, enthusiasm by the army was not particularly high. Um, anyway, we, we were uh, at that stage of the game um, in the process of developing tipjet motors and uh, all that went with them. And so it was a good exercise from the technical point of view to go ahead and try to develop the um, rotor power systems. Yeah. Did it have any particular features that stood out in terms of differences between that and, and the other record? Like you mentioned the cyclic and the, yes, the, the collective. The first time the aircraft appeared it had uh, a tilting head which uh, was controlled by a hanging stick. And hanging sticks are ergonomically very unsatisfactory but worse than that the forces um, were very high and the stick went around in about a two-inch circle all the time. So it was extremely difficult to know what was going on and it was so heavy on the controls and so responsive as an aircraft that it wouldn't have been long before somebody was killed unless we did something about it. Yeah. So we complained very early on and something was done and uh, power controls were introduced and uh, a floor-mounted stick and from that moment on, we were home and dry. Yeah, because you, you basically brought it back to that conventional layout. Yes. Plus the hydraulic system, which, which yes. made quite a um, I see they've mentioned in here about it um, you know, being able to be flown off a truck and back onto a truck. Did yeah. you do any of that at all? I did all of that. Um, yeah. And uh, the aircraft... Although you had to know what you were doing, it was hard work, but uh, nevertheless the aircraft was controllable, and when I say controllable, you could control it precisely. Yeah. And uh, getting on and off the truck, where well, you had about a three inch uh, margin on either side, um, although it was uh, a little bit nerve wracking at first, became quite normal. Did you use the sort of like the conventional fly to the side and then move across onto the bed or just a, um, a direct approach onto the bed of the truck? Usually a combination of the two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, letting yourself down onto the top of the truck wasn't very good because you couldn't see enough of the truck so you came at it from the quarter or yep. from the stern and um, you had to be careful on touchdown that you were facing in the correct direction and that you had three inches on either side of the skids to uh, accommodate you. Um, it was a trick which um, was important because the army wanted it to live on a, a truck and so we had to demonstrate that we could do it. And indeed there was one uh, demonstration at Foundra when something went wrong in the, um, there's a stabilizing bar in the air duct from the engine to the rotor head. But, and it was a, a bullet shaped device of stainless steel about the size of a 50 caliber bullet that came off the end of the stabilizing rod went up into the rotor head and then down one of the blades and smashed its way into the tip jet motor at the end and this of course produced uh, quite a massive um, out of balance on the rotor with lots of vibration um, and also um, it halved the power um, I was still, even then, able to get it onto the back of the truck, and I don't think anybody knew what had happened. Um, when we got it back again, we had to change the tipjet motor and the uh, 
stabilizing bar and have a look at everything else and keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> and um, it was all right. It was a tough little airplane. Yeah. But, yeah, at the end of the day, unfortunately, um, nobody took it up in terms of orders. And no, the Army realised in the end that it was something that they either didn't need or couldn't afford and couldn't see any way of, of introducing into forward units, which was fair enough. We never actually expected, I didn't anyway, I thought it was a luxury that um, was really an interesting project, but not really worth it. However, um, we did take it to Canada, and there it's one of its main weaknesses was, it was exposed. We went to Montreal and we demonstrated to various government organizations, and they were quite impressed until, of course, the inevitable happened. You, you take a, a bloke for a ride because he wanted to see what it was like in the air, and he'd say, well, can we go and visit our home? I'd say, well, where is that? Oh, it's on the other side of Montreal. And I knew we didn't have enough fuel to go there and back again. <laughs> so, you know, it became obvious that in a country the size of Canada, it wasn't really worth thinking about. Yeah, it really was an immediate battlefield reconnaissance vehicle. Wasn't it? it was built to a very, very tight specification, yeah. uh, 3,000 feet a minute vertical rate of climb and 3,000 feet a minute descent. And it did that. <clears throat> Did they ever envisage the thing carrying any um, any other forms of detection equipment? It was mostly it was visual observation, obviously. Just to, uh, oh yeah, visual um, through binoculars. But yeah. um, yes, that's right. Um, it was before the days of these fancy sights um, yeah. came in, and uh, it was just to quick get up there, have a look around, and then get the hell out of it quickly yeah. um, so it wouldn't it wouldn't have been practical to use it as an, uh, an artillery observation or, or uh, post well it would provided you didn't want it to stay airborne for all that long you know? <laughs> um, it would stay airborne for as long as it could and that, that was fine and you, you could use it for that yeah um, and you can get back to the truck refuel and be airborne again so you know it, it would have been some use uh, I'm sure of that um, it also was capable of carrying one passenger, yeah, and uh, that the army was attracted to because it could take casualties if necessary. Yeah, or liaison work, or yeah, yeah. yeah take take the the boss quickly to his meeting yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, what was the sort of endurance on it, John? Can you remember off the top of your head? All the figures have gone now, but it was it was quite short. Yeah. I think forty odd minutes, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, obviously an interesting. An interesting sort of diversion in your <laughs> your way to to bigger and better um, aircraft. Um, another one that they've um, they've identified, of course, uh, is is the old hunting P seventy four, which, uh, from my my quick reading of it, was an unmitigated disaster even before it got off the design board. Um, yes, there wasn't anything about the P seventy four that was satisfactory. It would never have flown. And it was obviously designed by people who must have done it in their lunch breaks or something like that. And certainly they had no idea about helicopters. It, uh, it was given to us to, um, presumably, to take it through to flight testing and all the rest of it. And we started off on the ground rig at Bedford. And it never, got, it never left the ground rig because it just couldn't. It had interesting things, um, totally different to any normal helicopter. For instance, the cyclic controls were not actually properly aligned and energized until the rotor was turning, because they were all um, situated on the end of long pieces of cable, and you needed the centrifugal force to, um, to get them aligned up and uh, so on. Stick forces uh, were enormous. In fact, you, two of us on the stick just about move it. Collective pitch lever was, uh, well, we don't pull it up too far because there was another um, wonderful idea. It had two engines both feeding into the same duct, and they realized that if one engine pushed too hard, it would put the other one out with disastrous consequences. So they had a, a, an engine cutout system. Yeah. If the pressure differential in the, in the duct from each engine became too great, that one engine would be shut down. 
And of course, that almost always happened. So we were never really able to get it up to full power. I noticed, noticed in the description I was reading that one of the, the crazy things was that the exhaust pipe systems went up through the center of the cabin. Yes. So, so uh, the, the whole the whole design of it was a disaster. The concept the was way out. Um, it was real sideways thinking, but going nowhere. And uh, we left it still chained to the ground. And uh, I think by that time they'd realised that there wasn't much use for it. Other things, uh, which I think I mentioned last time we talked, uh, the people didn't know much about helicopters who designed it. So. They pinched little odd things from other manufacturers like that. They took the collectors literally almost straight out of the um, sycamore. But instead of mounting it on the floor, they mounted it on the dashboard, which uh, meant that everybody, everything worked the wrong way around. Yes, and completely course, backwards. The, the movement of the, of the control, when pivoted from above and forward, was entirely uh, unacceptable to the human animal and uh, we found it extremely difficult to use, fortunately. I seldom have ever got much of a chance. I think one of the other, other uh, fortunate features that, that didn't get anywhere uh, is a comment made in this article too, that the only way in and out of the helicopter was a, a door at the rear. Yes. So you had no other form of emergency egress at all. No, it, it was, um, well, that was just a minor point actually. <laughs> The uh, the cockpit was so tight that with a crash helmet on, you were touching the canopy, and you know it would have been most unsatisfactory to try and fly it like that. Starting the engines and stopping them was always fun because you never knew what was going to happen. Uh, one was always shutting the other one down, and so on. So um, we were very glad to see the back of it in the end. Yeah. As you say, it was, uh, it was just as well it didn't go anywhere and that they didn't uh, try and... It didn't look proceed. right anyway, just, no, just it, looking at the it, thing. That, uh, <laughs> it, it, the, the whole thing, yeah, it's just totally unbalanced. Really. You look at this little spindly yeah. little undercarriage on yeah. it and a big sort of tadpole type the fuselage. Uh, and, and the comment they make at the amount of that tail rotor was just... It was there more for decorative purposes than anything. Yes, it would have made a good Christmas decoration. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, the jet gyrodyne, uh, we did talk about that in the last session, uh, yeah. uh, and you used that as a great stepping stone to, to the, the rotodyne. Yeah. Um, that really sort of gave you that good introduction to the um, jet blade propulsion system, didn't it? Yes, uh, it, it helped to um, to sort of uh, introduce us into what to expect when the Rotodyne came along. The two weren't the same by any means, but uh, nevertheless they were similar, and uh, it was very valuable from that point of view. And it was a good, strong aeroplane. Um, although it killed its first test pilots um, when they modified it, um, it went through to the end of its time without any problems. The weakest point, I think, was the um, Leonides engine, which uh, spoiled everything. But uh, apart from that, it is a, is a slightly unusual design uh, for helicopters at the time, with that sort of H tail and the twin rudders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that um, there was. You didn't really want to take a, um, a drive off for a tail rotor. No. Yeah. Um, and uh, you had. Um, prop wash, which would provide you with a measure of um, directional control, and it wasn't designed to, to do anything specific other than to explore the, the system. Yeah. You know, had we wanted to sell it to somebody, then we'd probably have to think about more seriously about better control. But you had some directional control, of course, from the propeller. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we were never short of directional control. So um, it's, you're just using uh, what pitch, blade pitch change on the props and, and power changes to yeah. influence uh, directional. That's right. Yeah. But of course, uh, in uh, in helicopter flight, when the propeller wash was relatively modest, um, the fins kept the thing going directionally quite happily. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that was good. Okay, so that really, there'd just been much, you know, just as a finishing off, I think, there'd just been much time flying that the jet rotor I every flight that was made, I flew. Yeah. Again, I, I guess the, again, the the style of flying was again was very close to to your home base in, in the sort of local circuit area. And yes, it was. The, yeah, um, yeah we it. seldom went very far away from home because, uh, well, you don't want to stray into other people's airspace when you're busy doing something inside the aircraft all yeah. the time. And uh, the UK airspace was very. It's handled very well, I think, because um, everybody realised that you had to get on with your own job and you didn't want to interrupt uh, other people. Mm. So we were all very kind to each other. And again, did you um, carry much instrumentation or observers during those flights? Oh, yes. Yeah. We always had a flight test observer, or more. Yeah. And we had a whole host of instrumentation. I guess the interesting thing, uh, looking back at it, in the, those days of instrumentation, a lot of it was, in terms of the black boxes of instrumentation, were fairly large and cumbersome because we're still in the oh. valve technology and things like that, so there was yeah. nothing compact. You were jolly lucky to get them in the cabinet. Because <laughs> 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 uh, they, they were measuring all kinds of things, and in a, what is by now, of course, a um, very primitive standard. But nevertheless, it all worked. And uh, you had cameras recording um, instruments yeah. on instrument panels. So we used to have a, a, an instrument panel in the rear for the flight test observer and a camera photographing it so that they could see what we could see and they could record it. And we also had, uh, depending on what we were measuring, of course, um, recorders which would... Uh, record things like uh, stresses in the structure and so yeah, on. Yeah, um, G-forces. And, yeah. Yeah. I've got the rotor down here, and I don't know whether it's up to date anyway, it doesn't really matter, but that's one, two, it's about 350 hours, something like that. Yeah, yeah. which is, uh, on, on a single aircraft type at, at that time, you'd be, you know, you're really familiar with the aeroplane by the time. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Usually you can tell very quickly <clears throat> what an aeroplane is like. But the thing that takes the time is actually measuring it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the seat of the pants and the hands and the feel thing is good, mm. but how do you quantify that uh, into right. every, everyday usage for somebody else? Well, the Rosedown was a very well-designed aircraft, and it was very um, relatively easy to fly as a helicopter. The transition from helicopter to forward flight was tricky because we had no automatics in those days and we had no computers to drive things which now you wouldn't even think about. Mm. Um, and apart from the transition which could have been cleaned up and would have been cleaned up a hell of a lot, um, the aeroplane behaved very well. Mm. And apart from the directional stability which um, gave us a bit of trouble in the beginning, all the way through our flying program, um, the aircraft behaved well and enabled us to do things like carrying the Mexi Bridge without any problems. We carried our 30 odd nurses without any problems. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, you know, we're now talking about the old Rotodyne. One of the things that I read in this, this article of, of the history of the thing um, was its biggest drawback was that jet noise. Jet noise, and of course, in the early days, vibration. This you have with all helicopters. Um, noise was being tackled um, by the tripjet department um, very, very vigorously and very well too. Mm -hmm. And we had no no doubts that we'd have made a satisfactory uh, solution to that. The the problems of vibration, of course, were. Um, a bit difficult in the beginning because you can imagine that Rotodyne was a large box mm. suspended from the rotor and we had to stiffen up the back end because the box was shrinking about too much. Twist, twisting as well as... It was, it was uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oscillating, yeah. That's right. And it wouldn't have been satisfactory for an airliner, but that was something... That's standard engineering, you know, yeah, there's yeah. just nothing, you know. Yeah. 
The uh, directional stability we had a bit of a trouble with, um, and we had to increase the size of the uh, of the fins. The interesting thing with those fins, if I'm reading correctly, what it says in here, they they rose up once the blades. Yeah, well, uh, um, in forward flight, you would have them in the up condition. Yeah. Um, coming in for a hover, you'd put them to the down condition. And that was just a vertical a, a slide, was it? No, 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 they, they, they just folded. Folded out. Yeah, yeah. and that, that gave a rotor more room to flap. Oh, yeah, I see where it is there. Yeah, so the bottom, <coughs> the bottom half of the fin was fixed underneath the stabiliser, yes. and it was only the top part the that top. laid down yeah. or stood up. Yeah. yeah. That would be quite good for a, an asymmetric problem, wouldn't it? If one went up and the other one didn't. <laughs> I don't think it would have made all that much difference, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, the aircraft had plenty of directional stability. It was just a question of refining it. Yeah. The um, the question of vibration, of course, was always a, a problem. Did that um, vibration show itself back through into the controls as well on your feet? No, no. no just the controls were very, very um, clean, if you like. Yeah. No, we, we had trouble with ground resonance. When we started to investigate ground resonance, we discovered that, um, that the aircraft could be prone, put into the right conditions. So we introduced um, dampers in the rotor head, which uh, were not good enough for, for the total solution. In the end, we, um, we introduced dampers in the, in the undercarriage. In fact, the undercarriage was capable of moving backwards and forwards and sideways, um, which cured the, the problem uh, beautifully, but it gave the aircraft a very ungainly uh, movement on the ground. It walked along. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, it was a bit, I don't know whether that would have been acceptable to the airline, but it would have to be if uh, that was the only solution. And, uh, you know, that solved the problem of ground resonance, and we didn't go back to it to, to try and refine it. This certainly was a, a quite a large interest in the aircraft as a potential for commercial oh, and military use. A tremendous interest. The, the Americans were, were absolutely over the moon about it. They wanted it badly, and so did the British Army, uh, the Army Medical Service. But unfortunately, there was no money. And the Americans had a, a system whereby if the home country would subsidise the development of the aircraft to a certain level, they would put in the rest of the money. Yeah. But the British government couldn't do it. No, they broke. Yep. So, um, and the, the final demise of the Rotodyne was it was almost like a, um, a coup. The aircraft had to be broken up at a certain within a certain day, and uh, you know. That was it. That and was all the bits that went with it had to be destroyed. Yeah. All the jigsaw. There was no way of, of, of ever coming resurrecting back. it. Yeah. 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 Um, were you on the aircraft when it got that world speed record? Yes. Yeah. That must have been uh, quite a quite yeah. a good feeling. It was quite exciting. Um, I must admit. Fifth uh, of January '59. Yeah, we were driving it hard. Um, I don't think at that particular time we could have gone faster, but we might have done. Um, <clears throat> there is an element of how well you go around the corners, of course, and that's something that we, we had to, uh, to learn. And we could have done better there, I think. With further development, of course, the aircraft was capable of going faster still. So that was really a straight line speed, was it? It was a closed circuit. Closed circuit, yeah. Yes. yeah. And uh, it wasn't difficult. It was, you know, we, we could have done it time and time again. Um, and I was very proud of the aircraft because we had no problems whatsoever, What's either it? from the flying point yeah. of view or from the maintenance point yeah. of view. It was a serviceable airplane. Yeah. What sort of angles of bank could you achieve with it? Sorry? What sort of angles of bank could you achieve? Sort of oh, uh, 45, 50 degrees. Yeah, no problem at all. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. And, you, and you, um, yeah, you're talking about taking, carrying some interesting loads there, but the bridge... Bridging lift, I guess that was showing a good underslung capability, which would have been yes. quite large for a helicopter of those days. Well, the Maxi bridge looked huge, even under the rotodyne. And when I first saw it, I thought, God, you know, what have we let ourselves in for? But of course, it was a light alloy, and uh, it was an open um, 
structure. Yeah. Structure. And we lifted it no problems at all, and we positioned it no problem. Um, it wasn't a question of whether the helicopter could do it. It was a question of stopping the bridge from swinging around. It's starting to oscillate. And, yeah. Well, yes. Uh, we put um, drag uh, chutes on it, and uh, that fine. We, that stabilised it in a forward flight. But when you got into the harbour, of course, you had ground crew to uh, yeah. position it properly. Yeah. And uh, that would have been a very useful thing for the British Army. Um, and... Uh, I don't think we'd have had any problems. No, nothing turned up that was um, significant. <clears throat> yeah. And I guess you know when you um, when you're doing that again, it was all fully documented, and you had your oh, your observers yeah. and everything there. So all of the strains and stresses yeah, we, and the um, char flight characteristics were duly yeah. noted. At that stage, it, well, it, we didn't see it being cancelled, so you know everything went ahead as normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what was the um, what was the load of nurses that you took? That sounds like a rather interesting diversion. Yes, I was very surprised at that, and uh, the more I think about it now, the more stupid I think it was um, to put all those girls into a development aircraft at that stage of its uh, flying career. I think it was taking a big risk, and. Uh, Fortunately, it came off all right, no problems. In fact, the girls enjoyed themselves. <laughs> they didn't have any complaints, but their nurses don't complain very much. <laughs> and they probably didn't know what, what was happening. You know? No, it was a day out for them. Yeah. Um, and that was just, that was still what, just to create a max all up load, was it? Yes, well, of course, the, the, the Army Medical Corps um, wanted the aircraft in the Army service because it was uh, for casualty evacuation. And they could see that the next war was going to generate huge numbers of casualties. And they needed an airplane yeah. that could go down to where the casualties were and take large numbers away. And it, it would have been, yeah, it would have been quite good as a, a oh, massive evacuation. Absolutely yeah. excellent. Yeah. I guess when you look at the thing, eventually it probably could have been developed to a point where there was a, a reasonably, you know, you could have opened it and swung the tail open and turned it in basically into a, a freighting type aeroplane. Yeah, we we um, we had great plans for it, obviously, <clears throat> and the, the production version was going to be about twice the size. Um, it was going to revolutionise city centre to city centre transport, which is why we did the runs to uh, Paris and Brussels, and. Um, did them very well. Noise wasn't too much of a problem. You know, we went into London uh, heliport, we went into Paris, went into Brussels, and nobody complained about the noise. So, uh, so those sort of going into France, and that, what sort of altitude should you cruise at? Sort of normal aircraft? Oh, yeah, the sort of normal altitude that a, a light aircraft would, would travel yeah, at. Yeah. We didn't take, we didn't go airline routes. No, but yeah, no. Just, yeah. Five or six grand. Well, it was one off and organised beforehand. Yeah. You know. yeah. Uh, but we didn't come up against any problems. Uh, in fact, it was rather dull. Oh, yeah, it, it mentions here the flight deck trials mm. for the um, ultralight. Yeah. We had no problems until something happened, which uh, I suppose was my fault, really. In a fit of enthusiasm, I decided one beautiful morning to get airborne very early, about five or six o'clock, just to make sure the airplane was uh, fit and ready for the trials at sea. Mm. And what I hadn't thought about was that the strain gauge leads that went from the rotor blade strain gauge elements down to the recorder in the cockpit were taped along the leading edge of the of the blades with fabric tape. Um, worked very well, you'd never know they were there, really. Unfortunately, on the way home, a, a very heavy and quite isolated little shark turned up, and I thought, oh, I must get, get on the deck quick, because the ship will be sailing very soon. So I flew through it, and flying through it, bore through the the tape that was holding the wire blade, wire on the blades, and the tape opened up to present about a two-inch flat plate to the airstream, mm. and of course I, 
I was in the middle of Fortland Harbour by that time and just about able to maintain a gentle sink and I made for, for Chesil Beach and just got there in time um, <clears throat> and landed the thing and of course got out of the aircraft and uh, sort of had a look at what was going on and after about 10 minutes I saw the ship sailing <laughs> that was it I was stuck on, on Chesil Beach in my pyjamas um, and for the rest of the day I would have to amuse myself because the ship wouldn't be back until late afternoon. So uh, <laughs> I was a bit embarrassed by that. Yeah, well, it's one of those things you just wouldn't think about, really, is it? Yeah, but we just replaced the tapes yeah. and we carried on later and uh, no problems. Yeah. yeah. I just noticed uh, one of the questions I asked on the Rotodyne was were the engines actually powerful enough for the task? For the task that they were um, introduced um, to do, yes, they were. For the prototype. We flew yeah. the Mexic Bridge, we flew 30-odd yeah. uh, nurses, we got the world speed record for a 100-kilometer closed circuit. They worked very well, except that they were development engines and were very, very dirty. Mm. And they were leaking oil all the time. And unfortunately, the oil was uh, EP oil, which is very corrosive. And I made the mistake one day of... Um, flying back over the um, car park at Westland at um, Fair Aviation, not realising that I was dripping oil <laughs> quite profusely. And it landed on the top of my new Vauxhall and went straight through to the metal. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, fortunately it didn't do much damage to other people's cars, but it ruined mine. So yeah. I guess yeah, if the thing had gone further than development, obviously those engines would have, well, would have been modified or, a, or a, oh, another engine, another engine would have, uh, yes, engine would have come along. We wouldn't have used those engines no, anyway. Yeah. Well, we were going to use Tynes, I think. Tynes, yeah. yeah. Um, which would have, uh, yeah. Uh, it's just such a pity that it didn't proceed because, of, as you say, it would have been it was a, a shame, revolutionary uh, <clears throat> uh, intercity transport aircraft. And that was the time when um, really pre-computers uh, um, it was just on the age of when computers were becoming possible. And uh, with the aid of modern computers, we could have refined the whole thing right down uh, to the nth degree. We had one amusing little thing. Um, we did actually do a computer to act as an autopilot. And it worked quite well until eventually the aircraft went in for a rehash of all the instrumentation and the fitting of a, of a slightly modified autopilot. And when we took it out again, um, the autopilot didn't work at all very well. And uh, we, we puzzled over this and uh, poked around and discovered that the only thing that was different between the two autopilots, the first and the second, was that one had a long lead that didn't go anywhere. And we discovered that if we put a long piece of wire into the system that didn't go anywhere, the second one behaved much better. <laughs> <laughs> but a basic fault finding, eh? Yes. Yeah. Well, just brings a, a, a question up, uh, John, that you know, when, you, when you're doing these trials and things, um, obviously from time to time additional instruments are added around the cockpit to oh, monitor yeah. various things. So... The, the old standard T layout and that all disappears oh, and you've got you, little bits stuck here and all over the place. Yeah, that's right, and uh, it was necessary and we did it and it was uh, good, no problems. Yeah. You know, once you knew that you needed to use the things, they were tacked on somewhere, wherever they could find enough room that was in the right place. Yeah, and then eventually when another instrument layout Oh, yeah. panel come in, they'll be incorporated into it. Yeah. We, yeah, we always had stick position indicators, that sort of thing, yeah. um, because we were using them uh, during the process of uh, assessing the flight envelope. But um, <clears throat> no, that, that was normal. The ultralight suffered quite badly from that because it was used for a lot of, uh, I don't know, sort of odd things. Experimentation. Uh, yeah. Nothing to do with flying, but maybe with tip jet developments and yeah. that sort of thing, yeah. you know. So of all of the, oh, one of the other things that uh, we're going to talk about, um, which is briefly mentioned, but we can come on to it now, is the uh, the Wasp and the Scout. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, both helicopters <coughs> which did see full production yep. and had 
very, very outstanding and quite long military careers. Yeah. So where did you come into in that development process? Well, we took over the development of the Scout and the Wasp from uh, Sanders Row when they um, were folded up. And it w was at a very early stage. It had actually flown, but I think we probably were on the third or fourth flight or something like that. And uh, I went down to... Um, where was it now? Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, the first time I flew the Scout, for instance, um, I was amazed at the uh, shortage of control. I went into a climbing right-hand turn and suddenly discovered I didn't have enough forward cyclic to stop the aircraft's nose from rising. So we had quite considerable control problems in the beginning. And uh, these were put right fairly quickly by increasing the control range. And uh, eventually we worked up from there. The aircraft itself um, was not all that much of a difficult proposition. It was the engine that was really the biggest problem. Um, it was a development engine in, in a development aircraft, which is always bad news, of course. Mm. And uh, your chances of getting a flight in without some problems with the engine seemed to be pretty remote. And we had a lot of engine failures. We really did. I became extremely good in the end at dealing with them. Water rotation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it was... Uh, but we, we, we battled on. Uh, the other problem we had was rotor blades. Um, I hate to say this because um, it's not very complimentary to the, um, to the sort of the workshops. But they didn't seem to be able to build two blades that were alike. And therefore, um, getting the blades uh, into track and also balance was not easy. And we spent endless hour after hour after hour tracking and um, balancing the blades. And we never really solved that problem. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I've just been finished reading a book um, on. Uh, Iroquois operations in Vietnam, uh, written by a crewman, and he talks about the blade tracking um, and having a um, a stick with which they held <coughs> up and just swiped the end of the blades, and each tip of each blade had a different colour on it. That's right. And yeah, and then they could see which was the high, which was the low blade, yeah. and then obviously adjust accordingly. So was, did you do a similar sort of? Exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, it was the only method of of, uh, of doing it at that stage of the game. Um, highly dangerous, of course, because you had to be uh, a brave and be quite accomplished in order to be able to use the tracking flag. Yeah, and just the tip. Yeah, exactly, just the tip touching um, it. And as I say, we spent countless hours trying to do that and changing blades to see if we could find a, a set that were compatible. And this went on right through to the end. In fact, it got so bad that uh, I was threatened at <laughs> one stage of the game with dismissal if I couldn't do better than I was doing. But it was really um, extremely difficult. Well, of course, on, on both the, the, the Scout and the Wasp, you had four blades to contend with as well. Right. So uh, yeah, it's not to say you just got a two-bladed aircraft, you've got four blades to get in balance and to make sure that they track. Yeah. It was a difficult aeroplane in many ways. Um, we had, I had some troubles with hydraulics, for instance. I, I got up to 10,000 feet one day on a performance climb <coughs> and uh, discovered I couldn't go down because I couldn't move the collective pitch lever. It had gone solid. So I sat there and thought about it for a while and I devised a way of, of getting the aircraft to descend. And as I came down, of course, into warmer air, it went back to being normal. So what had happened is that the collective pitch, which wasn't being moved at that particular stage, had frozen. Mm. And the hydraulics were, uh, jacks had frozen. So we had a bit of uh, nonsense over that. They did manage to improve it in the end, and we never really saw it again. So in terms of flying between the two types, the Wasp and the Scout, um how did you find transiting from the Scout, which is skid, to the wheeled wasp? Was there much of a difference in terms of landing no. or takeoff techniques? 
No, there was uh, the airplanes were so similar. Um, it's what you, it's the type of landing and where you landed that was the thing that dictated the, the difference mm. between the two. Mm. Um, they were very, very similar. The Wasp was always a little bit heavier, of course. Mm. Um, and uh, landing was different in the sense that uh, with the skids on the Scout, you could do an autotative landing on grass and, get, and not bother too much about it, whereas mm. with the... Uh, the naval version, you had wheels, and uh, if the wheels were configured to the shipboard configuration, uh, where they were All not turned enough, yeah. uh, then you were in trouble. Mm. And that's, that was a, a manual setting too, wasn't it? There was a pivot and lock. Yes, you had no you control, no control from the cockpit. Because yeah. uh-huh. yeah, with the scout, you could do a run-on landing or a run-on takeoff. Oh, that's right. Mm. And, uh, you know, we used that, of course, to carry heavy loads. Max loads, yeah. Um, the... <laughs> the one battle that we had, that we never won in the end, with the design department, was that the army was absolutely adamant that they had to have boot scrapers <laughs> on the skids. And uh, I was all for that because I'd, I'd operated in mud and, and I knew what it was like to climb into a helicopter with a half an inch of mud on the bottom of your boots. Uh, but the design department wouldn't have that at all, no. Not in the business. We, we design aircraft. We don't do boot scrapers. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the army had to do it themselves in the end. That's um, the, 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 yeah. the mod. Yeah. But uh, the Scout and the Wasp were good aircraft, although difficult to, to keep in top-notch condition. And it does the Navy tribute, and also the Army, that they managed to use it for so long. And to, to such good effect. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like uh, a bit like the the old Bell Forty Seven with all of that exposed engine and everything. You mm. know, when you when you consider the actual operating conditions that they had to operate under, uh, especially in a maritime environment with yeah. this heavily salt laden air, yeah. uh, corrosion is going to be one of your worst enemies. Well, the Navy line line is good uh, at maintaining its aircraft. The uh, New Zealand Navy was even better, um, as I think I told you before. I went to the, um, <laughs> what you'd call it, but it was a um, a parade of, of wasp aircraft by the squadron up in Snurpai, um to commemorate their was it 20th year or something like that of operation. Yeah. And the aircraft that I saw there were as good as when I cleared them from the factory in, in Yeovil. They, they were absolutely superbly maintained, and although I didn't fly one, I'm sure they would have flown exactly the same way. Yeah. And uh, I told the commander um, that I was enormously impressed, and he was very pleased, because um, being so far away from the rest of the world, they don't have much to compare themselves with. Yeah. Whether that means that they do better, or, or they could do worse, you know. And that's right, yeah. Um, and of course, we were the the last navy to to operate them as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, it's it's a, a tribute to the the longevity of the aeroplane and the maintainers. Yeah, uh, they were able to keep them going for so long. Yes, I like the Wasp. It was um, it was a good aeroplane for the time. It was small. It was limited, but um, it did a damn good job within a. a a fairly confined um, specification. I guess one of the, the most unusual things with the wasp were the two inflatable bags that the thing had to oh, ditch, yeah. and it always surprised me that, that, that of necessity they were mounted above the cabin doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always thought that if you went into the water and these things would pop, if you were in the cabin, it's a matter of holding your breath, wait till it fills full of water, and then swimming out underneath them. Main thing is it stopped the aircraft from turning over. Yeah, yeah, and that was the yeah. That, that, that's the killer. Yeah, um, and uh, I never went into the water, um, so I don't know what sort of level they floated at, but uh, I, it was pretty low. Um, but I think your head might have been just been above water. Yeah, well, the one that they ditched in the in Waitemata Harbour, uh, that's exactly what did happen. It settled, uh, but the the cabin, the, the pilots. Uh, area was was yeah just he, just up to about chest level yeah because um, it, of course it could pop the doors off and just exit yeah. yes no no problems um, 
We did do a lot of flying, of course, without the doors. That was good because uh, it meant that you could get out very quickly indeed if you needed to, but of course in the winter it was not very mm. sensible. Which brings me to an interesting point with helicopters, is the command position or the, the captain's position in the helicopter's right or left-hand seat. Uh, some helicopters command positions in the right-hand seat, like the Iroquois, for example, simply because the winch is mounted to the right, so the pilot flying the aircraft and working with the winchman has immediate look, whereas the normal captain's position in an aircraft is the left-hand seat. Yes, I, I don't, I'm not sure of the origin of that, but um, <clears throat> the first helicopter that I flew, which was the R4, was a right-hand captain, and at that stage of the game, they hadn't thought about a winch or anything. Mm. So, uh, but it meant that the um, collective pitch control was then available to both seats, all be yeah, in the it, middle. Uh, the, the left hand uh, had, had to use his right hand. Had to use his right hand. Yeah. Well, I'm right-handed, so uh, you know that's why I, I enjoyed instructing because I didn't have any difficulty changing from sides. Um, and then it, that proved diffi difficult for a lot of people, so they put another collective outboard yeah. of the left-hand seat, yeah. and that solved all that problem. <clears throat> and it's never changed since then. And uh, yeah, yeah the well, whirlwinds that I flew in one hundred and three, the same thing. The captain was a right-hand seat, but yeah. again, that's because it had the cabin door was on the right, and the winch was on the right. Yeah. So it made all the logical sense. No point. Well, there are um, there are moves, of course, um, among some uh, operators. They they like to have, if they've got a right hand captain, they like to have the winch on the right hand side. Yeah. Because then everybody can see what's going on. Yep. Rather than the left. Um, I personally, uh, I don't mind if really the question of balance is not an issue. If you're going to lift a load on the winch and you've got everybody on the right-hand side, it means you've got more control to, to use to stop it from skidding off. Yeah. yeah. One of the things you did bring up that was an interesting point there, John, was dual controls in terms of collectors, yeah. uh, specifically. Um, most of those test aircraft were dual controlled, or that was uh, simply, I think, because uh, that was the requirement. Mm. Uh, we're going eventually into service as uh, airplanes with dual control, and so we started off that way. Yeah. Now, just one uh, another sort of a broad question in terms of uh, instrument flying capability. I guess most of them were pretty limited in what line flying instruments, as they used to call them, were fitted at the prototype and testing stage. Oh, in the early stages, yes. Uh, instrument flying came much later. Um, and it wasn't easy because helicopters didn't behave like fixing airplanes. You, you were dangling from a rotor and the fuselage could be at funny angles, um, which didn't sort of um, equate very easily to uh, clean instrument flying. But later on, um, you know, you had to know your stuff, you had to be practiced like you have in an airplane. Yeah. And they, they weren't as easy as a fixed-wing airplane. Very largely because in the early days, of course, you had to provide all the stability. It was, the, the aircraft was basically unstable. Yeah, so your instruments are going to be bouncing all over the, over the dash, basically. So you're well, not going to get uh, you had so much work to do to stabilize the thing. And, and yeah. also, you know... <laughs> You were looking at it from an unstable platform, and everything was happening all at the same time. Um, later on, when we had autopilots, things got a lot easier. Yeah, because yeah, the artificial horizon wouldn't have been too much good for you, because, uh, again, you... Very often you were dangling at a, an odd angle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I did a lot of trials on the S-51 to try and figure out um, any navigational errors that would come about from the fact that the aircraft usually flew nose down and right wing low, and that was in a straight line, you know, so uh, I thought, well, in the end I came to the conclusion it didn't make any difference. Yeah. Yeah. What about night flying? Did you do much night flying? Quite a bit, yes. Um, at Boscombe Down we had some horrendous night flying activities um, to do, which were part of the, uh, the general overall picture of development, because we also were uh, were um, 
the requirements unit for the ABAC people at Porton Down. Yeah. And, you know, they'd come up with a requirement, for instance, they want a helicopter to, to fly in the hover at 8,000 feet, dangling 3,000 feet of cable with a huge firework on the end, <laughs> giving out millions of candle candle power. Power, yeah. yeah. Um, that sort of thing. But uh, fortunately, we, we managed to curb their enthusiasm to a degree. Postscript to the interviews with John Morton. The Autobiography of John G. P. Morton. Lieutenant Commander Morton joined the Fleet Air Arm in 1942 and received his flying training in the United States. During and immediately after the war, he served as a fighter pilot in 1835, 1846 and 804 squadrons at home and in the Far East. After a helicopter conversion in 1949, he was appointed to 705 Squadron and later took charge of the helicopter flight of the underwater development establishment at Portland. An instructor course at CFS in 1950 was followed by a further tour with 705 Squadron involving service assessments of the Dragonfly Mark III and S-55 helicopters and sea trials to investigate the possibilities of small ship landing platforms. In 1952 he was appointed to A&AEE at Boscombe Down and in 1955 retired from the Royal Navy to join the Ferry Aviation Company Limited and subsequently Westland Aircraft Limited. During this period he was intimately connected with the development and testing of the Dragonfly, Sycamore, Bristol 173, Percival P-74, Skeeter, Wessex, Ferry Gyrodyne, Rotodyne and Ultralight, and the Westland Scout, Wasp, Gazelle and Lynx helicopters. <laughs>